chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5, 12. We now come to a passage whose theological importance rivals that of chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Paul paints in these verses a bird's eye picture of the history of human redemption. All people, Paul teaches, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his act of righteous obedience. Now, if I could, this is a... um, Most theologians would agree this is one of the heaviest theological passages in the Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. If I could draw something very quickly on the board and have you keep this in mind as an overlay to the entire passage, I think it will make a lot more sense to you. This passage is about one man who disobeyed. And it resulted in death. And then one man who obeyed, and it results in life. The man who disobeyed, of course, was Adam. The one who obeyed was Christ. So you have a one man, one man relationship. One disobeyed results in death. One obeys results in life. Now that framework uh, can be overlaid over this entire paragraph. If you can go into it with that understanding, this very complicated theological passage can make, I believe, a lot more sense to you a lot quicker. So again, let me repeat. All people, Paul teaches, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, is the term that Paul will use here, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act of obedience. The two acts, while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power. Christ's act is completely is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's sin. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy knowing that the reign of death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Now the theme of this paragraph, and by the paragraph I mean verses 12 through 21, The great theme of this paragraph is Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. Now where does this paragraph fit with the flow of the letter? Remember in the previous paragraph, verses 1 through 11, Paul had stressed the certainty of our justification. We've studied that, or we studied it over several weeks. He answers the question essentially in verses 1 through 11 Will this justification survive this life? 
And he answers it in two ways. First, negatively, in verses 1 through 5, even though I experience tribulation in, in this life, it is not designed to destroy me. It's designed to strengthen me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. I remain justified in spite of suffering. That was this chapter, the first five verses. Then Paul answers the question, will justification survive this life? In verses 6 through 11, positively. We were justified when we were sinners, when we were enemies of Christ. Now that we're family, he will keep us justified. The passage, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, begins, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And in most of your Bibles, there will be a dash after the word sinned. I'll explain that in just a moment. This passage, and by this passage I don't just mean verse 12, but we'll start with verse 12 tonight. We'll study the rest at a later date, um, over several weeks actually. But this passage shows why those who have been justified and reconciled can be certain that they will be saved from God's wrath and share in the glory of God. So the previous paragraph answered the question, will this justification survive this life? Now, in this paragraph, Paul tells us why this is going to happen. It is because Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. Again, this basic overlay of the passage. One man disobeyed. That one man is Adam. You're going to either be identified with one, you'll be identified with one of these two. There are no third choices. You may say, you may, you may uh, bring up Buddha, Muhammad, yourself, whoever you want, but, but then you're still being identified with Adam. You're either Adam or Christ. Adam's going to result in death. Christ is going, to be, is going to result in life. We're all born identified with Adam. I think this passage will make this uh, crystal clear. Again, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This passage could be read, and, so, and let me just insert a translation that may help us follow the, the actual grammatical flow. Therefore, it's literally because of this. And this because of this actually looks back to verses 1 through 12, and there's a sense that it looks forward to verses 12 through 21. It's kind of a hinge phrase, diatuto, because of this, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ordinarily, a writer begins a sentence, or when a writer begins a sentence with the Greek term just as. He's introducing a comparative sentence that would end in so also. Just as, so also. We do that in English, too. But Paul doesn't do that here. And because of that, most New Testament scholars conclude that Paul starts a comparison in this sentence that he doesn't finish. This is one of the things that makes this passage so complicated in its original language. At least he doesn't finish the sentence grammatically. At least he doesn't finish the sentence grammatically right away. There are some theories about when he might come back and finish the sentence. We'll have to talk about those as we get to later on in the paragraph. This is what grammarians call an anacoluthan. Perhaps you've heard that term. Now you know a new one. An anacoluthan is a sentence that a comparison that begins but doesn't 
finish. The one man referred to in verse 12 is, of course, Adam. The name Adam actually means man in Hebrew, Adam. It's very simple to remember when you're taking Hebrew. Adam means man. The noun for sin in this passage is in the singular, which we'll find is characteristic of Paul from now, verse five, chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through chapter 8, verse 13. We'll see sin ordinarily in the singular. Sin has an active role in this section of Romans. We'll see five aspects, actually. Sin reigns in chapter 5, verse 21. Sin can be obeyed in chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. Sin pays wages, chapter 6, verse 23. Sin seizes opportunities, chapter 7, verses 8 and 11. Sin deceives and kills, chapter 7. Verses 11 through 13. I don't understand how anyone could preach the word and not preach sin. But many pastors won't do it because they think it's offensive. But you know what? If there was a poisonous snake in one's bed, do you think it would be offensive to say, Hey, listen, there's a rattlesnake in the bed. You might want to jump out of it. I mean, really? I mean, what? where do we get this nonsense that to tell somebody the truth about their status, either you're identified with Adam and you're going to die, you're identified with Christ, you're going to live, that's offensive? Come on. It's cowardly, is what it is, not to tell the truth. In a word, Paul personifies sin, picturing it as a power that holds sway in the world outside of Christ bringing disaster and death on all, on all humanity. I think people need to know that. People need to know that if you don't change your mind, things are not going to go well for you. The fact that Paul attributes this sin to Adam in this passage, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Did you catch that? It doesn't say through one woman. Okay. Well, I mean, it's an important theological point. It, Paul attributes this sin to Adam, and that's significant because surely Paul has read Genesis, and in Genesis it's clear that the woman sinned first. So why is he blaming Adam? It should, you'd think of it just as through one woman, sin entered into the world, but he doesn't do that. Yeah. No, in, in fact, it's, it's clear Eve sinned first. Paul tells us as much in, in 2 Corinthians 11.3 and 1 Timothy 2.14 if we couldn't get it from Genesis, which we can. So, for the few minutes that we have left tonight, before we go any further with Romans chapter 5, I'd like to set the stage for us by going back, all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, the third chapter. So for the rest of the time, you don't even have to hold your place in Romans chapter 5. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, one of the pivotal chapters in all the Bible. It says sometimes that in order to understand the New Testament, you have to have a grasp of the Old Testament. And in order to understand the Old Testament, you really have to have a grasp of the book of Genesis. And in order to understand the book of Genesis, you must have a grasp of the first three chapters, chapters 1 through 3. The creation and the, the account of creation and the account of the fall. Without a grasp of that, many of our theologies will have faulty foundations. Even... Even, I believe, the theology of soteriology. 
will have a faulty foundation without a proper grasp of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Let's read the first eight verses together, and um, we'll consider them tonight as, as part of our study of Romans chapter 5. You've heard them before. Listen to them afresh, and why don't you practice for our Bible study methods course that's going to be coming up in a few weeks. Practice observing this passage. So as I read, don't let your mind wander. Focus on what's being read. I know you've read it before, but focus on what's being read. Everything, including even the first word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you should die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. We'll stop there if we have time. We'll go further, but otherwise we'll stop there tonight. There is some question about how much time elapsed between chapters 2 and 3, or between the creation, the seventh day of creation, when uh, the Sabbath day of creation when God rested, not because he was tired, but because his work was finished. He had created man, and, and everything else he created, he said it was tov, it was good. When he gets to man, he said it's tov me'od, it was exceedingly good. So we've, we've finished this, the seven days, and we have to wonder how much time elapsed between the, the seventh day of creation and the day of the fall. Uh, Al Ross, who's one of the greatest Old Testament scholars that there is, right in, right in a class there with Ron Allen, who will be here in April to speak to us. We're going to have some an incredible time with Dr. Allen. Uh, but uh, Al Ross points out that there's nothing grammatically in this text that indicates it, it could be anything other than Monday. You know, the, the very next day. Uh, it, it may have been a little bit of time. I personally don't think it was very much. I don't think that it was a thousand years because Satan has, has witnessed this creative event and Satan knows what he's going to do. He knows he's much, much smarter than either the man or the woman uh, exponentially and I don't see him waiting around for that long to go in and attack this couple. But it really doesn't matter how much time they had. Some people say that uh, there was it, it may have been a, a, a thousand years, there was no children there, uh, there's children after the fall, etc. They were told to be fruitful and multiply before the fall. If you read the text carefully, I just would have to assume that if, if this was a thousand years, there would be a whole lot more kids around. So whatever the, the case, I think this is a... My guess is it's within a nine-month period anyway, so there's no children around, uh, because I don't think Adam would have waited a, a thousand years to start attempting to procreate. So we won't go very far down that road. <laughs> Even though I see some of you want to. That's, that's, this group. Now the serpent was more crafty, so we now we, we've entered into a, 
a very serious day in human history. The most significant day in human history, in my view, is the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, and if we, if we put the days together, the day that he was resurrected. But he would have never had to go through that day if it wasn't for this day, because this is the day that man fell. And when man fell, it was a colossal fall. Sometimes we don't pay quite enough attention to the fall. Sometimes we minimize the fall or the effects of the fall. The, the fall was a huge event in human history. And when man fell, everything fell. Even creation fell. And Paul says that creation, even today, groans under the curse of the fall. This is something we'll talk about also in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The whole idea of total depravity. And what does that mean? And it's, it's a heavy theological term, but what does it mean to us as we live our lives on a daily basis? The serpent here is identified in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, as Satan. So we understand that the tempter, at least I understand, that the tempter was Satan himself who possessed and controlled a literal snake. Now, the snake didn't crawl around on his belly before the fall. It does afterwards. We don't know a whole lot about this serpent other than this, that the serpent was more crafty, more wily, more wise than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I want you to notice, I hope you already observed it as, you, as we read through the passage, but Satan's first step was to plant a seed of doubt into Eve's mind concerning God's ways. He does that in verses 1 through 3. The key phrase is the, the phrase, of any, in verse 1. And you can almost see um, or hear, even feel, the dripping sarcasm that the serpent uses to penetrate through the defenses of the woman. Um, and he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Or this could be translated in Hebrew, you can't eat from every tree. Either way, he's dripping. you got to be kidding me. you got all these wonderful trees here. You mean you can't have them all? And he's baiting her. He suggests here, actually what he's doing, he's focusing her on one prohibition that God had done. And he suggested that God didn't really want what was best for Adam and Eve, but really was withholding something from them that was essentially good. Uh, we didn't cover it. We've got tapes on this, and I would invite you, if you're interested, to go back and listen to, to the lessons that we did in Genesis. But remember, again, his creation as it was created was tov. It was good. And the creation of man and woman was tov me'od. It was exceedingly good. And Satan is trying to convince the woman that that's not the case. That God doesn't have her best interest in mind. He doesn't certainly doesn't have Adam's best interest in mind either. He's only got his own best interest in mind. He doesn't want anybody to be like him. Of course, Satan already had gone down that road. But he doesn't want anybody to be like him. He just wants it all for himself. He's almost like he's a cosmic puppeteer up in heaven, just, just manipulating you, trying to make life miserable for you. And that is a satanic lie that has come all the way through to our day. There are people out there that, that really want to try to convince you that God doesn't have the best in mind for you. Maybe even the person that's trying to convince you that God doesn't have the best in mind for you is you. Sometimes we, we have a pity party. We start thinking that. Oh, poor, poor, pitiful me. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. It's a pretty inclusive word, isn't it? Nobody includes God, doesn't it? 
Well, you're, you're doing exactly what Satan tempted the woman to do. Think, well, God doesn't love me. Yes, he does. What else has he got to do to prove that to you? Now listen, seriously, what else has he got to do to prove to you that he loves you other than that, what he's already done? You say, well, he could give me that car I want. And I'm not kidding. Some people are that way. I knew a person, a couple, that of a, of a different theological persuasion. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm convinced. But they had seen a house. They wanted a huge home, and they claimed it for themselves. You know how that goes? I claim that house for myself. And then they prayed to God to give it to him. Well, he didn't give it to him. Meanie. What a mean God. And then they turned around and became angry with God because he didn't give them the new house. Something must be wrong. Then after they became angry with God, they looked upon themselves and said, well, what am I doing wrong? Well, the first thing you're doing wrong is your theology is all messed up. You don't mean to go around claiming houses like that. What, you know, what do you think you are, a gold digger or you know, one of these prospectors? I'd stake a claim on that. No, it's silly. Don't do that. God does have the best in mind for Adam and Eve. And this is where Satan drives the first wedge. I love the book of Genesis because you can see the first wedges, the first time things happen. And you can also trace out how they happen again throughout the scriptures. Well, this is how he drives a wedge between the man and the woman. He also drives a wedge between God and the woman. And he does it with dripping sarcasm. He hinted that God's line of protect, protection was actually a line that he drew because he was selfish. There was a reason God didn't want him eating of the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it wasn't because he was selfish. It's because he loved them. Sorry, my notes got out of order. Eve is vulnerable to this suggestion because she's going to distort the word of God. Now watch. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now, just keep that in mind. It may even be on the same page in your Bibles. You may glance to the, to back to Genesis chapter 2, verse, let's say beginning verse 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now again, listen to what Eve reports as what the command was. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you should die. She doesn't report. If we're careful, if we're careful in observing what's happened, she doesn't report what God had said. Now, by the way, there's a lot of speculation as to why she doesn't report it. Did Adam not teach it to her correctly? Uh, was she not listening? Was it Adam's fault You know that, that, that she didn't get it? All that is speculation, and I'm not going there. You, know, you could write books about that, but you're on shaky sand. When you do, it's like, it's like trying to figure out if Adam and Eve were in the garden for a thousand years before the, the temptation came about. It's, if it's not in the text, we should probably move on. But we can see that regardless of why she distorts it, she distorts it. And actually, she misquotes it more than once. I mean, the, the most obvious one is what? You don't touch it. Okay, that's the most obvious one. But actually, there's three 
she, she disparaged her privileges by misquoting the terms of the divine permission as to the other trees. God had said, you may freely eat. Eve simply said, we may eat. It's not a great distortion, but, but still a, a slight distortion. I'll, I'll make a statement about that in a moment. She, the second, she overstated the restrictions by misquoting the divine prohibition. The Lord said nothing about touching the tree. That's the most obvious one. And then third, she underrated her obligations by misquoting the divine penalty. God declared, you shall surely die, mot tamut. It's sometimes translated, dying you will die. But it's, it's a Hebrew phrase that means it is absolutely 100% certain you touch it, you're going down. That's about as best as I could put it into modern English. But she doesn't say that. She just says, lest you die. So she doesn't quote it exactly. Now watch, God reveals his character through his word. This, the, the God's word is God's self-revelation. When we don't retain that self-revelation precisely, we get a distorted view of God. As a result, God has not given anybody permission to be sloppy with his word. This is not one of those things where we're going to sit around and I'll read the verse and you tell me what you think it means and then we'll go to the back and see what they think it means and then over to the side we'll see what they think it means and then we'll all hug and decide maybe we can come up with a synthesis of all these views, even antithetical views. No, of course not. There is a truth that is revealed in the Word of God and we need to figure out what it is and it'll either be, we'll either be right or wrong about it but there are a whole bunch of different Ways of understanding these single truths is too hot in here now. I don't know what's going on. So, since Eve distorted the Word of God even slightly, even slightly, this leads her to doubt God's goodness. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? You distort the Word of God even slightly, the first thing that you have a faulty view of is God. Okay? And she had a faulty view of God because right off the bat, she had a faulty view of God's Word. Again, I don't know who's to blame for that. The text doesn't tell us, so I'm going to lay it on her, at least at this point. Now, she's not going to get this, this. Again, this doesn't say through one woman. So this is not the reason that death entered into the world. Maybe the reason death entered into her, but not into the world. We'll talk about that again just shortly. Again, Satan's claim directly contradicted the main point of chapters 1 and 2, namely that God would provide what is good for man. She distorts the word. She buys into Satan's claim because she's distorted the word for whatever reason. Now look at verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. He's right now calling God a liar. This is what God told you, and this is not going to happen. Actually, had the woman said lest you surely die? Uh-uh. Satan's a lot closer to quoting what God had said than the woman is. You see, he just takes the opposite view. Satan knows the Word of God, too. Satan can distort the Word of God like nobody's business. And there are people out there that preach the Word of God that are distorting the Word of God and that are on the other side. Now, I'm not saying everybody that we disagree with, please. Everybody that you have a problem with, please. That doesn't mean they're satanic. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that there are preachers, preachers in quotes, that aren't even believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that can quote Scripture. And they distort it in a way that is so frustrating that uh, it just makes you want to um, do physical violence to them sometimes. <laughs> 
Verses 3 and 4 again, 4 and, four and 5 again. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the second step in Satan's temptation was to deny God's word. In denying it, he imputed motives to God that were not consistent with God's character. Just as an aside, whose character were they consistent with? Satan's character, right. And that's a subject that we studied recently on Sunday night. God's true motive was the welfare of man, but Satan implied that it was God's welfare at man's expense. This added suggestion seemed consistent with what Satan had already implied about God's motives in verse 1. Having entertained a doubt concerning God's word, Eve was ready to accept a denial of his word. First distortion, then doubt, then denial. But it all begins with subtle distortions. We need to be sticklers about what the word of God says. Now sometimes, and and I have to speak to our circle now, sometimes being sloppy about the word I don't think is a problem most of us have. But a problem that we can have sometimes is being such a stickler that we assume everybody that doesn't agree jot and tittle with us is a heretic. I'm talking about even amongst issues within the family. And that's not the case either. It could be, it could be that we're wrong about something. It, you need to keep that in mind, to keep, an, to keep an objective viewpoint. Because if everybody else is wrong about everything else, that should be a little minor red flag that's going on. Okay? If, you find a, if you find a pastor that's never wrong about anything, it's just as bad as a husband that's never wrong about anything or a wife that's never wrong about anything. Do you get the point now? Chances are they're wrong about a whole lot more things than what they'd let on. Am I right? I'm right. Except for Paul Shockley. He's never wrong about anything. But we're going to talk to Jill afterwards. Yeah, Paul, could you excuse us for a few minutes now? No. <laughs> oh, boy. The first doctrine Satan denied in Scripture was that sin results in death, which is a separation from God. Or we could say the doctrine that God will not punish sin. This is still the truth that he tries hardest to get people to believe, that there is no punishment for sin. One of Satan's biggest lies is that there is no hell. And he's convinced a lot of pastors to follow that lie and not teach it to their congregations. Now, having succumbed to the temptation, Eve disobeyed God's will. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, now it happened, the fall happens fairly quickly. She took from its fruit and ate, fairly simply. And then the passage goes on to tell you, once you end up sinning, once you actually go through the final act, it's probably not the initial act. This sin began several verses before. It, it wasn't completed until then. Remember, temptation is not a sin. The, the sin here wasn't com- completed until she actually takes it and eats from it, because at that time that was the only prohibition. Today, some of the things that she did beforehand would, would be sins as well. But this was something that she had been wandering toward. Sometimes I think we think, I know we think, 
that we can get real close to that creek of sin or that river of sin. And we'd like to get, we'd like to kind of edge close to it and look around and see nobody's looking at us. Let's, let's go see what that looks like. I don't want to get in it. I don't want to swim in it, but I'd sure like to take a look at it because everybody else is taking a look at it. It must be really fun. Now, well, instead of jumping in, maybe I'll just stick my, maybe I'll just stick my toe in there and just see if it's hot or cold in there. If you do, you're going to come back toeless because sin has consequences. But it wasn't just the sticking your foot in it that got you. It's, it's going over there in the first place. And so you see that Eve, this whole thing was a progression that finally ended with these very brief words, almost in staccato uh, order. She saw that the tree was good for food. We can equate that with the lust of the flesh, the desire to do something contrary to God's will. In other words, eat the tasty fruit. In the second place, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, parallel to the New Testament, lust of the eyes, the desire to have something apart from God's will, possess the fruit. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise, equivalent to the pride of life, the desire to be something apart from God's will. In other words, to be as wise as God is. It was the quest for wisdom that led Eve to disobey God. Eve saw, coveted, and took the fruit. And if you're with us through our study of Second Samuel, the next time that, which would be a week from Sunday, when I present Second Samuel, you'll see a very similar pattern with David and Bathsheba. He saw, he coveted, and he took. Very similar pattern. But we'll talk about that two weeks from now. We think, we lust, then we act. The separation that sin produces in man's relationship with God stands out clearly in verses 7 and 8. We'll do those and, and close it down for tonight. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves uh, loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Their new knowledge that the serpent promised would make them as God or like God, actually taught them that they were no longer even like each other. They were ashamed of their nakedness and sewed leaves, fig leaves together to hide their differences from each other. Perhaps they chose fig leaves because they're a larger leaf. I don't know, but, but uh, it really doesn't matter. The cool of the day is literally the wind of the day. God came to Adam and Eve in his wind, perhaps even in his spirit. He came in a wind earlier in creation in chapter 1, verse 2. Later to Job, Job chapter 38, verse 1. He came to Israel in the wind, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. And he came to Elijah in the wind in 1 Kings 19:11. Once this happens, Eve doesn't die physically immediately. But she did die spiritually immediately. She experienced alienation in her relationship to God. That's what spiritual death is. Now, physical death is going to follow because of what happens in spiritual death. When we talk about death in Romans chapter 5, remember that that includes both physical death and spiritual death. It's not just, we all know it includes spiritual death, but it includes physical death as well. She doesn't die at once physically, but she did die at once spiritually. Death in the Bible means separation. It doesn't mean annihilation. Their relation, when, when we talk about 
the spiritual death, it doesn't mean that there's no relationship between them and God at all. It just means there's a negative relationship that, that has taken place. Sin always results in alienation. It, it results in alienation theologically between God and man, sociologically between man and man, psychologically between man and himself, and ecologically between man and nature. There are three types of death that occur in the scriptures, that are mentioned in the scriptures. Physical death, which is separation of the body and the soul. Spiritual death, which is separation of the person and God. And eternal death, permanent separation of the person and God. The Apostle Paul wrote that Eve was deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, but that does not indicate that women by nature are more easily subject to deception than men. Had Satan gone after Adam, he would have deceived him too. I have no doubt about that. I speculate, and you don't have to write this down because this is my speculation, but I speculate that the reason that Satan went after Eve was that Adam was the one who was ultimately in charge. Had he gone after Adam, and this, again, I just speculate here, but had he gone after Adam and deceived Adam, and the same order of events would have occurred, and then Adam, being the federal head of the human race, would have turned and given the fruit to his wife, and she would have taken and eaten it, then I see a theological dilemma being created. Because she should, could technically say, hey, listen, he's, you told me he's the boss. I'm doing what he said to do, and so there's a big problem. But when you reverse it, this is the genius of Satan, when you reverse it and go after the woman first, and then the woman gives to the man, the man has no excuse whatsoever. Both of them are, are spiritual, spiritually dead, but it is the man's sin because he was not deceived. He did it with full free will. That's what Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 5. Dwight Pentecost, I'll say this in close, Dwight Pentecost says about this whole concept, it's interesting to observe that when this sin is referred to throughout Scripture, it is not referred to as the sin of Eve, but rather as the sin of Adam. The phrase in verse 6, with her, seems to suggest that Adam was at Eve's side when she was tempted by Satan. As God's theocratic administrator and as the appointed head of the family, it was Adam's responsibility to safeguard Eve and to assure that she remained in submission to the command of God. But Adam failed in his God-given responsibility and permitted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. Well, next time we're going to tackle the phrase that is at the end of Romans 5.12, the phrase that says, because all sinned, and the one that has a dash after it, where the sentence is not completed. And we'll talk about the, um, the views on the headship of Adam and how sin is, trans is transmitted to the entire human race.